Where does yesterday's future, which is already here, ready here, ready here, ready here, meet today's future, which is about to happen, and tomorrow's future, which could be just minutes away? Welcome to Technology Revolution, the future of now, where host Bonnie D. Graham asks savvy futurists for their predictions about the tech-driven trends that are shaping our future right now. Here's your host, who will take us into the future of now, Bonnie D. Graham. Bonnie D. in the house, happy to be here. I got a great show for you because it affects everybody. I don't care who you are, where you are, you're part of the world. And that means you've got data, little bits and pieces or whole gobs of it floating around somewhere. You may think you have control over it. I think the horse has left the barn door because it's been open for a long time. We're going to talk about that. But I want to do a shout out to a gentleman named Stephen Cariolis. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right for bringing me today's topic and my esteemed for panelists. And panelists, before I introduce you, I want you to wave hello to LinkedIn. Mon, say hi to LinkedIn. I want you to wave hello to Facebook. We're a very casual reality-based show here, Mike. I'm sure your podcast is much more formal than mine. Ha ha. Here we go. So I have an opening <laughs> monologue. I found five interesting buzz quotes. I think they're interesting. And by the way, when I do my opening and I say the future is already here, and then I, I never remember which side is yesterday or tomorrow, but I know that the current is in the middle. So I get confused as to which side, but you'll all help me figure that out. So let's go. I have a quote from Margaret Cho, who is a stand-up comedian who likes to critique social and political problems, and we're not talking politics today. She says, privacy and security are those things you give up when you show the world what makes you extraordinary. Does everybody agree with that? Yeah, we're showing the world is the key here. That's that's the verb in the sentence. That's the issue here. Now I have some news for you. January 24th through 28th, and today we're live on April 13th. Not Friday the 13th. This is Wednesday the 13th. This was Data Privacy Week. Millions of people are unaware of and uninformed about how their personal information is being used collected or shared in our digital society. We accept that. Data Privacy Week aims to inspire dialogue and empower individuals and companies to take action. So did anybody here on the panel ever hear of Data Privacy Week? No, anybody? No, I didn't, I didn't think so. Well, I, they didn't invite me there, so we'll have to do something about that, Mike, next time. I'm talking to Mike because he's got a podcast. Buzz number three, I have a quote from Thomas Harrer, H-A-R-R-E-R. He's the chief technology officer of IBM Systems Hardware Sales in Europe, and he says the following, in the next three years, and I don't have the date for this attribution, so let's just assume it's in the past 12 months. In the next three years, the value of data will increase, making it even more valuable than it is today. And this is for companies. The more efficiently you store your data, the more benefits your business will see. I think I saw somebody nod to that. I have buzz number four. I'm almost done. This is from Stefan Napo, who is the global head of informa- information security at Societe Generale International Banking. And he says, digital freedom stops where that of users begins. Digital evolution must no longer be offered to a customer in trade-off between privacy and security. This is all for all of you to think about. Privacy is not for sale. It's a valuable asset to protect. Word protect is what we're going to be talking about. And quote number five, this comes from Consumer Affairs. According to the FTC, that's the Federal Trade Commission's Consumer Sentinel Network Data Book. I've never heard of it, but apparently it exists. The most common categories for complaints in 2021 last year were identity theft and imposter scam. Get this. 406,000 people reported that someone had submitted a fraudulent government document 
under their name. Oh my, data privacy, data security, data, whatever it is, our data is out there. So I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and wave when I call your name and then we'll get to your bios. Mike Audi, he told me I can call him Audi, A-U-D-I. Hi, Mike. Nice to see you. Love the microphone. Mike's Mike. Tim Drisdale is with us. Tim, welcome. Uh-huh. Nice to nice to meet. I've never met these guys till 12 and a half minutes ago. <laughs> so I'm, I'm excited. Shane, he said I can call him Faria or Faria. And he is on a beach somewhere and the palm trees are waving and I asked him to keep the whales and especially the sharks off the beach during the show. After that, it's up to you if you want to go fishing is fine. And we have Bing Shu Ren. Hi, Bing Shu. I love the plant behind you. I don't know if it's, is that virtual or is that, is that a real plant, Bing Shu? It was virtual. It's virtual. I I should have not asked the question. I wanted to think it was real. I'm a plant person. Anyway, thank you all for joining me and let's get started. Mike Audi, I'm putting you on full screen speaker view. Please do me the honor and my audience around the world of telling us who you are, what you do, what's your company, but most important, why are you here? What does data and data privacy mean to you? Mike, welcome. Hi. Uh, So yeah, I'm Mike Audi. Um, I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Tiki, where we are trying to return ownership of data back to users, enabling a world where we can have both privacy and access to data, i.e. we're trying to fix data. Uh, Trying to fix the internet would be another way you could say it. It's all broken and we're trying to fix it by returning power back to people. My background is in building data businesses. I've been doing this for uh, about a decade, building pretty big businesses with giant amounts of data and how to use data to create net positive benefits for humanity is really my specialty. Mike, do you think on our topic question that data really is, we know it's everywhere. Do you think data privacy is still or ever again possible? Yes or no? It's possible. We don't have it currently. Thank you. And by the way, I didn't give the title of this episode is Data Data Everywhere. Your data everywhere is data privacy in your future. That's our question on the table. Thank you, Mike, very much. Let's go to Tim. You're up next. Tim, welcome. Let's hear about you, a little bit about your company. And what do you think? Can we ever be private again? Do we want to be? Tim, welcome. Okay. Well, thanks for having me, Bonnie. Uh, I'm a co-founder of Lord and Liberty Hotels. And you might think, well, what's a hotel company doing with data? But the truth is, we're actually a tech startup hidden under under the cover of a, of a hotel company. Um, these are businesses that have vast amounts of personal data, which guests voluntarily give up to create better experiences. Uh, but that data generally isn't protected well and isn't used well. It's often used for a crappy email marketing campaign that mistargets you anyways. Uh, so at Lord and Liberty Hotels, uh, the products that we're developing under the hood uh, aim to use first-party data to allow people to have remarkable travel experiences. My background is in software engineering, um, previously at Siri, and before that, uh, Apple Retail Payments globally, and uh, my co-founder comes from hotels, so I'm not without that, that hospitable touch. <laughs> Thank you very much. I loved your comment about crappy email campaigns that usually mis, mis, misjudge you, misguide you, mis, mistarget you. Uh, look, I, I don't know if anybody's still doing a lot of email campaigns anymore. I'm not sure, but I know that my inbox is full. I like to let, I like to subscribe to a lot of newsletters that I have no intention of reading so that when I get up in the morning, if I have 50 incoming emails, I can go click, 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 red, 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 or delete, delete, and then get to the good ones. It makes me feel popular. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, 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 
never, I've never admitted that <laughs> live radio anywhere. This is Truth or Dare Radio. What can I tell you? Shane, welcome. Please tell us all about who you are and what's your take on data. Shane, welcome. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm Shane Faria, and I am also a co-founder at Tiki. I think Mike did a good job of explaining what we're trying to do here in a short period of time, so I'll leave that be. Um, I like to sort of consider myself an everyman to the scenario. Um, I've done a lot of different things in my life. I've worked manual labor. I've done retail. I've been a teacher. I've been a coach. I've done many different things. And uh, what really stood out to me about the data situation is I try to keep my eyes open to the world and what's going on and try to pay attention. And what I'm realizing is the amount of information that we are willingly giving away unchecked is a huge problem now and will only continue to be a problem in the future if we don't reclaim ownership of that data, because data in itself is neither good nor bad. It can do tremendous good and it can do tremendous harm. It really depends on the use cases and who has the ownership of said data. So I really think it's one of, if not the most important things in the future for individuals to first understand that data can be owned and then claim that ownership so they can consent into things and go down the avenue of good data use cases and not bad ones. Ain, I think you just wrote the intro to a white paper on data and data privacy. Everybody agree that was that was really well done, Shane. And you harked back to my opening quote from Margaret Cho. Privacy and security are things you give up. And, and the question is, do you know you're giving up? Do you want to give them up? Did you intend to give them up? Can you get them back? And the rest of her quote is, when you show the world what makes you extraordinary. I imagine there are still young people, and young does not have anything to do with chronological age. Sorry, kids. Um, people who don't understand that every time you tweet, every time you post on Facebook, I still can't believe people post pictures of their grandchildren and their children in personal settings in schools. On, I just don't understand why they would want that kind of intrusion or exposure of their truly personal, their assets, the people who matter to them the most, to a world that can be very unkind. So I'm, I'm still, I still don't get that at all. But anyway, thank you, Shane. That was a beautiful intro. We're very happy to have you here. And I do forgive you for being the only one on a beach. I think we're all very jealous. Uh, by the way, Shane just told me, he just texted me Mai Tais and other drinks Alcoholic or non will be served an hour after the show is over, giving us all time to get there wherever he is. So thank you very, Shane. Thank you very much. Big Shu, we are so happy to have you here. I can't wait to have you introduce yourself. Please go ahead. Hi, uh, I'm Bing Shuren, co-founder of a sports data company called Stasak here in Nashville. Um, my background is uh, a little bit of business and politics and software engineering. Worked at uh, several fintech companies before starting Stasak. Uh, my take on data is that I think data is everywhere, but they're being abused and the ownership of data will be more clarified in the future, uh, especially in sports data um, for, you know, youth or youth sports up to a professional level. Uh, a lot of these athletes are being, their data is being extracted, tracked uh, and utilized sale, uh, sold to different, uh, you know, parties, but they themselves have no idea what's going on behind the scenes and they want control. And of course, data will help them expose and 
better uh, be transparent with their performance. That, and there's a conundrum, isn't there, Bing Shu? Is how, how do you, as Margaret Cho said, how do you show the world what you can do, your stats, your popularity, your sports acumen, where you come from, where you're going, what your goals are, your aspirations, what your team is doing, and still say, I want to control what happens to that data once it's out there. That, I believe, right. is, is our big conundrum. And that's what we're going to be talking about in terms of where this is all going in the future. Now is the part of the show where I've asked my guests to send me a quote, either from a song lyric, uh, Tim smiling. Yes, this is the hardest part of coming on my show is uh, right, right, Mike. It's either a movie quote or a TV quote, but it has to be fictional character or a song lyric. And Mike Audi is first. Mike, you sent me a line from a, <laughs> the group is the orphans, a punk band formed in Westchester PA in 1995. And I, I won't list the names of the people on the band. They broke up in 2000, but they performed again in reunions in 2004 and eight. But the song is for an old Kentucky anarchist and the group was the orphans. And it's the story of a woman, I assume an older woman who's had quite an interesting life reflecting back on her life. And here's the lyric Mike has sent, and I can't wait for you to tell us what this has to do with data. Singing, I'm the richest I'll ever be. I embrace the world I have all around me. So sing a dying song and slap your knee. Have a taste of true anarchy. I watched the whole video and I, <laughs> I, I, I can't, I'm a drummer and I can't say I ran into the room and grabbed my sticks. I got them here. Uh, to drum along, but I think I'm going to have to bring up the track later. See, I'm telling the truth, so, Tim, like that. So, Mike, why don't you regale us with your interpretation of what this anarchy song has to do with data? <laughs> but keep it non-political, please, if you can. Mike, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, it's not actually, the song isn't about politics. It's about individual liberty, right? The whole thing is about a woman deciding how she wants to live her life and living it her way, independent of what people have to say and how the world puts pressure on you to live it their way, uh, which is ultimately what we're trying to do with data at Tiki. User data ownership means you as the user decide what happens to your data. You deserve control and compensation for your data. You decide consent. You make your own informed choices. None of us make the right choices all the time. That's one of the things they talk about in the song, but they're your choices. and. We all deserve the right and power to make our own choices. And that's what we need in data. There's no way that any one central entity, whether that be a government or a company, can make the right choice for millions or billions of people. We all have our own relative opinion on how much data we want to share with who, for what, when, why, how, etc. Right. And so there is no single solution. The only solution is let everybody choose for themselves. Very, very interesting. And speaking of choosing for yourself, I didn't ask you, how did you name your company Tiki? I was at a Tiki bar. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I, it really was that simple. We were just well, at a Tiki bar. <laughs> that's the obvious choice. See how easy it is. Those of you listening out there who are entrepreneurs and want to name your company something important, pick a short word that everybody can pronounce that you can spell in all caps without periods after it, right? That doesn't have to stand for anything that's fun and makes you smile. Did I fun hit them all, Mike? Yeah, fun and makes you smile. Honestly, everybody like... Data seems intimidating and scary and div diversive. It, like, it just feels like a lot. Um, mm. So a happy-go-lucky dancing pineapple as a logo with a company named Tiki makes things much more approachable, right? Because ultimately, every product lives and dies with whether or not people use it and like it. 
and adopt it. It's not about what the code itself actually does. Um, and so you want something fun. <laughs> Absolutely. What a refreshing way to name a company. Bing Shu, you were going to say something. Go ahead. No, I was just, I think it's a great name. It's very approachable. <laughs> approachable, relatable, yes, real. And there's nothing wrong with saying the name of my company has absolutely nothing to do with what we do, but we wanted to make you smile for 30 seconds today or five seconds or an hour, however long you want to smile while you're on the way to the Tiki Bar. Okay, thank you very much, Mike. Thanks for answering my question. I should have asked it in the beginning. Tim, mm -hmm. let's go to your quote. You sent me, I, I watched the video several times because I am not, I haven't watched Lord of the Rings. Forgive me. I'm just one of those, like a Luddite for this. I'm so sorry. Sorry. Uh, the movie is from Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, 2001. And the scene is Frodo Baggins, played by Elijah Woods, is talking to Samwise Gamgee, played by Sean Astin. They are sent off by Gandalf, played by Ian McKellen, and are traveling through the Shire, I hope I'm saying that right, on their way to Bree and the Inn of the Prancing Pony. Oh, this sounds like something we could talk about at a tiki bar. And the scene, Sam says, this is it. And Frodo says, this is what? Sam says, if I take one more step, It'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. And Frodo says, come on, Sam. And Sam takes the step. And here is the quote from Frodo. Frodo says, remember what Bilbo used to say. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Tim, I hope you don't mind. I did the whole scene, but I thought it was charming and I found the whole transcript. So I had a blast doing this. I might even That's watch good. the movie. Thank you. So go ahead, tell us how this relates to our topic, please. You transported me right back to the scenes. Uh, I grew up reading those books and cool. have mental images of every every stage of it. And I think that's, that's, that's a big part of this is that the real world um, lives outside of Zoom. It lives outside of your front door. Um, it lives where there is no data, it's just analog reality. Um, I'm a firm believer in, in the wind in your face and, and salt air and, and all that stuff. And when you, when you leave Zoom, when you leave your office, when you leave the four corners of your, your house, there's a real, real world out there. And it's very dangerous and full of experiences. And that's, I guess that's where the draw is um, for my participation in a hospitality company is um, it's when you depart, it's when you leave the normal that, that I think that there's real life out there, real brushing shoulders with, with people. Um, and even from a, a data perspective, if I was now to think about this from a data and I've, I've never done this, um, the moment you, you create that data and let it out your front door, you don't know where it's going to go. Uh, you don't know what life it's going to take on its own. Um, so there, there is that, that physical sense, that draw for me of, of travel, of adventure, of, of moving beyond uh, the four walls. Um, but there is a, a, an analogy there for, for your data, <laughs> leaving, leaving your front door. I like that. That's, that's almost poetic and lyrical about taking that step for somebody who's new, let's say, to social media. I think a lot of what we're talking about here is not just filling out forms where you want to be get something from a company, sign up for or an event or a white paper, but where you're on social and you're saying, how much am I going to tell people? What is that first step, the first time to leave your door and are your feet underneath you? That was actually beautiful, Tim. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I still may watch the movie, not read the book, read, watch the movie. Shane, I'm looking at your, your uh, this is from uh, the computer operator played by Tim Brooke Taylor, B-R-O-O-K-E hyphen Taylor, 
from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, 1971 American musical fantasy film. Uh, let me see. Uh, Gene Wilder starred as Willy Wonka. It's an adaptation of the 1964 novel Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Factory by Raoul Dahl. The story of a poor child named Charlie Bucket who, after finding a golden ticket in a chocolate bar, ooh, I would have eaten the chocolate bar and not worry about the ticket, uh, visits Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory with four other children from around the world. And here is the quote. This is the computer opera saying, I am now telling the computer exactly what he can do with a lifetime supply of chocolate. I have the whole scene here, but I'm not going to read it. Fascinating. Shane, talk to me. How'd you find this? Um, I don't know. I, I like to, I like to trust my gut. And for some reason I was drawn towards Willy Wonka. I just, I just had a gut feeling there'd be a good, good quote in there. And, uh, I remembered this scene when I was going through the quotes in Willy Wonka. And I think this scene does a, a, a good job of making light of, but actually highlighting, especially in 1971 was very prescient that they were even talking about this type of thing. But for context, the, there's these like business bigwigs in there they hire this computer analyst to locate the golden ticket, right? So the the computer analyst is talking to the computer and he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure out where the golden ticket is. I'll just ask the computer. And the computer's like, nah, that would be cheating. Right. So there's this weird like relationship where there's two people who have nefarious um, nefarious intentions. They want to locate this ticket through this machine that parses through all this data and locates where the golden ticket is. And then you have this sort of AI, like a 1971 AI that has somehow found its own morality system and is sort of going against the computer analyst and saying, hey, this is wrong. I'm not going to do this. And then there's this situation where the computer analyst is like, what if I shared the prize with you? And the computer is like, what am I going to do with chocolate? And the computer <laughs> analyst is like, I'll tell you exactly what you're going to do with chocolate. And the relationship there, this is sort of weird, but it's like, the human programs the computer and then that computer programs the human. So in a lot of ways, you could ask like, what do I, you know, what am I going to do with an endless scroll of videos of people slapping each other in the face? And then TikTok is like, I'll tell you exactly what you can do with an endless scroll of video of people being slapped <laughs> in the face. So it's like this continuous, like, you know, all the way down the line of a human does something to a computer, then a computer does something to a human. And we have sort of this, situation where the question isn't really answered in in the movie whether or not the computer figures out what it can do with a lifetime supply of chocolate so to this day i've still been wondering and you know i'm sort of playing back and forth between joking around and being serious but the, it, it's a real situation where it's like there's this book i read it's a very difficult read and i think i understood maybe 20 percent of it but it's called Programming and Metaprogramming the Human Biocomputer by John C. Lilly, an individual who took heroic amounts of LSD and talked to dolphins. Anyways, <laughs> this book, it, it talks about the brain as a computer and talking about how you have default programming and how you can override the programming, right? So lots of people have lots of information. The more information that you have, the more you can understand the program, the more you can override the programs inside. So it's sort of a battle in between between those nefarious actors looking to locate things and the people with that morality, be that a human or in this case, a computer. So I hope that did a decent job. <laughs> it, it really did. And I've always thought the brain is a computer. We, the, we're putting information in and we're trying to get it out. 
And I don't know about any of you, but there are things I remember from decades ago, and yet I can't remember whether I put the put the alarm on the night before when I went to bed. I got to get up and check. Uh, th there's something about that long-term putting data in, and what do we get out? Of course, I, I'm a programmer, by the way. I don't know if any of you know that, but I'm considered an early woman in tech. I was a coder way back in the day of key punching in the 1970s. And I was the kickoff speaker for Women in Big Data last year on March 8th for International Women's Day. And I showed them pictures of what a mainframe pro computer looked like and what a key punch machine. I still have my green bar paper and my COBOL book. I was coding in COBOL on a Xerox Sigma 6 CP5, where in order to load data, I had to stand on a step stool. Being sure you get a kick out of stand on a step stool in my high heels in my business suit, mind you, to load a disk pack that was this big with a handle on it and step up and drop it into a disk drive. That's how big everything was in those days. And then I graduated, 2,000 lines of code on Hollerith 80 column cards, key punched, carried in a box, God forbid, you tripped on something in your high heels. <laughs> and one story I'll quickly tell you is I got a call from, uh, from the operator one night, one of the computer operators. He said, Bonnie, uh, we just had an ab end on card number 783 in your deck out of 2000 on this program. We're running overnight. What do you want to do? It was three in the morning. And I said, give me a second. I sat on the edge of the bed. I closed my eyes. It was dark. And I said, go back three cards put in a zero on the JCL job control language, put in this on the operator's console. I'm going to stay awake for exactly four minutes. If you don't call me back, I'll know it ran. And I waited the four minutes and it ran and the, the program, the report was waiting for me when I got to the office the next morning. But that's how well we knew our code. Mm -hmm. Mike, I don't know if that's it, but that's how you, well, you had to know what you were doing and what the data was and what you were supposed to do. Anyway, I could tell you stories. Anyway, thank you very much, Shane. You did a wonderful job. I appreciate that. And I know what a computer would have done with chocolate because I was running the computer when I was a student and I would have eaten the chocolate. So let's go to Big Shoe. And you have sent us a quote from um, the American rapper J. Cole. This is from 2016. The song is Love Yours, Y-O-U-R-Z. And it's a really cool song. It's from his third studio album. And uh, his full name was Jermaine Lamar Cole, born in 1985. Rapper, singer, songwriter, record producer, one of the most influential rappers of his entire generation. Born on a military base in Germany, raised in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And uh, all I can tell you is he was the first artist signed to Jay-Z's Rock Nation in 2009. That's how important he is and was. Here's the line. No such thing as a life that's better than yours. Bing Shu, what does this have to do with our topic? Go ahead. Uh, it actually has a lot to do with our topic, especially, you know, I think in today's DNA, uh, day and age, uh, where data is everywhere and a lot of the data were given up to these big collecting companies, social, social, com social media companies, is based on the fear of missing out, uh, especially for younger kids in, in school in high school uh there's always something some trend they want to catch because their friends are on it uh like what shane was saying uh tiktok no you might not even know what what you want better or what you're more interested in, but tiktok knows right and these social medias they companies they they figure out ways to manipulate people's fear of missing out and profiting uh of that and i think uh it relates to a lot of the uh, modern day 
uh, in the in you know social media age where uh, there's always some people seem to be like there's always something better. There's always some trend they need to catch, or uh, there's just always something they want to uh, be part of to fill their void, either inside or their time. And uh, they never think about what they're giving up for, or whether what's the what's the trade off for uh, catching some or trying to catch up with something. Do you, do you really need? Um, and I think that quote describes perfectly well what's happening uh, to our generation, to to the young generation right now, and to to the society as a whole, especially give, given that uh, social media companies are collecting so much data without people knowing. And that's based on what people are fearing of missing. FOMO, fear of missing out. Absolutely. And it goes way beyond the younger generation. You said society as a whole, Bing Shu. I think that's a, a better perspective because we're all, I just created a, a short music video. I have a friend who taught himself digital music composition. His pieces have already been played by Cirque du Soleil and they're using as movie themes. And I'm an artist. I started painting two years ago. I've got 200 paintings in my home. So I created a Ken Burns effect motion video of 20 of my artwork pieces using his music underneath as the it's it's almost it's a bossa nova he called it bossa boni uh, it's a latin piece and it's all digital and it's lovely and we're so excited about using this little bit of technology and putting it out there that we're now talking to spatial.io about doing a virtual reality curated art and music tour so hmm. fear of missing out and and the void inside and i'm going to add another word to you bing shu the word also, and I think it's a healthy word, is curiosity. What else is there that I can get involved in? We may not realize we're filling a void. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it's just a, I know there's more I can learn, more I can do, and more I can be involved in. But the trade-off then is, as Margaret Cho said, when you show the world how you are extraordinary, whether it's in your own mind or not, <laughs> you're exposing yourself. And we haven't even talked about slings and arrows of what people send back to you when you share your, go look at Twitter during the Academy Awards and during the, look at, look at all the, the comments and the crap that goes on. Look at the, the negative side and the positive side, but we could go on and on about this. Thank you all so much uh, for your great great quotes and now it's time for predictions we've got a half hour left a little bit less so let's get going here's the way it's going to work i've already loaded up one prediction for each of you my choice out of the four you sent me we'll see if we can do two or three rounds but let's get covered as much as we can take two to three minutes mike you're first i'll read your prediction in a second but what i'd like you to do is shane bing shu and tim if you have anything to say about what mike's prediction is just wiggle one of your polite fingers at me and i will see you that's why we're on zoom tim likes that and and I do too. And I will call you and we'll get a brief commentary. Otherwise, if there are no wagging fingers, I will go to the next one. So you've each got one prediction loaded up for you already. And then I'll start populating with more. So Mike Audi, first prediction, you say we will because we must find a way for privacy, freedom and data to coexist. I'm going to stop there and let you finish the rest of the prediction. Mike, you're up. Sure. The answer can't be we don't have the internet or we don't have privacy. It's honestly kind of that simple. We have to figure it out. Like, we can't just be like, no, we're going to shut off all data to all these companies. Businesses rely on data to deliver better products and services to us. I was joking with Shane 
a couple weeks ago that the thing that drives me the most nuts is no one ever opts in. We've all seen it. The pop-up that comes up whenever you sign up for something that says, share your anonymous data with us to improve your product and fix bugs. Right. But yet we, none of us ever do it. I don't do it. And every time I'm like, they're offering to fix my product for free on their cost in exchange for me sharing a little bit of information. And it's simply about how it's presented. Right. And we need businesses to have data. So we get the best services, but we also need privacy, right? Then they can't be at odds with one another. They have been at odds with one another since as long as the internet really has existed. You can't even be a modern person today. Your prescription data is mined and sold by companies. Like if you buy anything (laughs) at all, if you go buy cereal at the grocery store, that is data that's collected and sold. Um, So that's whether you post on social media or not. And so we have to find a solution for privacy and data access to coexist because we can't get rid of one or the other. Um, We have a unique approach at Tiki. If you want to learn about it, come to (laughs) mytiki.com. But the idea is kind of really simple. Allow people to make choices because privacy itself is an individual right. And so my privacy is relative to my own life and yours, Bonnie, is going to be different than mine. And we all have our own relative amount of privacy we want to share given the type of data and who wants it and what they're going to do with it, right? And on the other side, why can't companies use data anonymously, right? Like why do they need to know who you are to be able to use data, right? And you hear this in marketing, it's called contextual advertising, contextual marketing. You don't need to know somebody to actually use the data. We created all of these identity tracking systems to make it easier for engineers and marketers to build the solutions, but they never needed to be. We can, like if you're a business owner and you get a graph, it's not like it's got like Mike labeled here, Bonnie labeled there, right? It's all rolled up into charts and graphs and predictions and AI calculates all that stuff and spits out a result and all of these things, none of them needed individual identity. Um, to make it happen. And so we've created this whole world where we're, we're making businesses have to protect our property um, when they're not qualified, capable, or staffed accordingly to do so, right? And so we've, cre- like, out of necessity, we've built this thing by tacking one solution onto another solution onto another. We, it's time to blow it all up and solve the thing from the ground up uh, now that we know what we need to do, right? Businesses need data, but they need it anonymously, safely, and ethically. People need can informed consent, right? Or as we say, control and compensation, right? Um, and that's kind of, that's, that's my view for the world. <laughs> I'm, as you're speaking, I'm thinking, I'm gonna take a quick poll of the panel. Uh, does anybody believe that there are any people who really don't care about privacy anymore because they accept that it's not possible, that the horse is out of the barn, the, the door is open to the corral, the horse is gone and they say, well, what the hell? I shared this on TikTok, I shared this on, on Facebook, I put this on LinkedIn and I've entered my information on three newspaper subscriptions and I've got a virtual movie pass and I've got all this stuff and I'm on a couple of food delivery services. Everybody knows who I am, where I am, my phone number. The only thing they might not know is the last four digits of my social security number, but that wouldn't be hard to find either. They know where my house is, they know the area of you, they know my address, they know what I paid for it. They know who my family members are. They know my last five addresses. They know my last four phone numbers. They know everything. Is it a kind of late? Do you think there's anybody who has just said, I'm throwing up my hands. I don't care about privacy. If you think there's anybody who says that, raise your hand. People who just don't. Oh, Mike's iffy. Mike, you're the one. Go ahead quickly. 30 seconds. What do you think? Because I want to do more predictions. Go ahead. So it's not that they don't care. It's that everybody's kind of accepted 
like there's no alternative right now. Resign. Right? Resign to We've it. We've all just, yeah, it's very nihilistic of, approach. Yeah. Just like, well, that is such, such is life, right? Um, not that they don't care, right? Yeah, they just accept. Tim, Tim, go ahead. It hasn't, it hasn't hurt them yet. I think in ah. general, it, it hasn't hurt them yet. If they haven't been segmented out of society, ah. if they haven't been, um, had, had businesses or money stolen from them, um, if they haven't struggled through through okay. personal oppression as a result of data, then it's easy to dismiss it, I think. And look at my one of my opening quotes about uh, the fraudulent government forms that have been entered for over 400,000 people in the U.S., at least in the U.S. in, in 2021, 406,000 and counting. Thank you. That was very provocative, Mike. I appreciate that. Tim, I'm going to your prediction number one. This is interesting. You say personal digital assistance will return between TripAdvisor, Yelp, and Google. It's almost impossible to sift through the noise and plan a perfect afternoon, let alone an entire trip. I'm gonna stop there and let you finish that. Tim, go ahead. Yeah, the uh, the original promise of digital assistance far exceeds what's, what's actually in place today, and it's needed now more than ever. Um, I, take, for example, something most of us have experienced. If you go on a trip and you visit a new city, on the last day there, you might, find that one little cafe or that shopping district or um, that beer garden, that perfect place that you love. And it's on the last day of your trip. And you think, damn, if I hadn't wasted all that time at Waffle House in the morning, um, I, I might've found this one perfect spot for me. Or if I had just gone to the TripAdvisor top 10 list of what to do in Nashville, you could miss that one experience that was right for you. But there is so much data so much reviews, you can just say, show me the best cafe in New York and you'll get 650 million results. And some of these reviews are sitting right next to each other. Five stars, best coffee in the city. Next review is one star. This coffee is terrible. And what do you do with that? What if, what if that person is nothing like me and they love loud, exciting places that are vibrant and noisy and you know gritty? They might love that experience. For me, not so much. So how do I discount those reviews? There's just so much out there now. And it, it hits all the time uh, when you're shopping, when you're, when you're doing, um, especially with trip planning. You may just end up leaving a one-star review at a hotel, not because it was terrible, but because it was terribly mismatched for you for that trip. So we, we think that using first-party data and getting a personal look at each, each traveler, not only their personality, but their purpose and interests and needs for this trip creates a sort of Venn diagram of the sweet spot of what, they, what we should um, surface to them for what to do next. There, there's, there's a lot to do in this world. There's so much to see and such a little time to do it in it feels sometimes. And, um, to waste it, to, to go back to Bing Shu's comment about fear of missing out on, on experiences and places, mm -hmm. what, what happens if you go and try those things and you're not fulfilled, you're not satisfied, um, and you feel like you just bought into an email marketing campaign of what to see and do based on Google reviews? It sucks. And I'm, I'm sad. I'm sad. <laughs> but, but, you, but you know what? Think about movie reviewers. How many times have you read a review that this is a professional reviewer who does this? They might see 20 to 100 movies a year. I don't. They, they have context 
of who or the producers are and the directors and the writers of where this came from. And they're reviewing it from a context that has nothing to do with me as a person who's looking for entertainment, what my genres are. So I might not, sometimes I'll just go see a movie because somebody said it was terrible because I don't, I'm not them. I'm not them. Uh, I will tell you a a quick story, Tim. I want to move on. My, My story is that when I was on Long Island, New York, I was there before I moved to Durham, I was there for 32 years and dating somebody. And we went out with two couples to a restaurant and there was a restaurant two blocks away, easy parking. Everything was great. And I said, everybody, let's go there. And one woman said, no, absolutely not. And I said, why? She said, you ready? Tim, you know what she said. She said, I read on Yelp, it got negative reviews. I said, but I'm a real person and you know me and we've been out as couples before and I live two blocks away and I've been there last week and service was great. We had a really funny waiter, very charming man. The food was outrageous. The, the menu is good and the prices were reasonable. And we're, the six of us, we're going to get a big round table in the window. We can watch everybody walk by and great neck. What's more fun than that? And she said, no, I just read 20 reviews on Yelp and five people didn't like it. And four people said, maybe I said, you're taking the Yelp reviews over me. Mm. I, I'm, I'm real. And I know you when we, anyway, we went there. <laughs> <laughs> We had a good, we had a good time. But anyway, this is what you're fighting is the, is, is the question of Bingshu, are you going to miss out if you, if you accept the wrong review and listen to the wrong person? But I digress. Let's move on. I'm looking at Shane prediction number one in the next 10 years, data will be viewed as a physically tangible asset by the majority of people in developed countries. That's one sentence that is packed. Shane, can you unpack it in three minutes for me, please? Yeah, I wasn't really sure how specific we were supposed to get here. So I think I went full send on the specificity there. But I think (laughs) (laughs) if I'm right, if I'm right, I'm going to brag about this indefinitely. So 2032, we'll we'll look back on this, see if I was right. But um, I think the key word here is view. So a lot of the barrier of entry right now is a matter of a frame of reference. And so when you explain or talk about data to most people, they think they visualize it in their head as these like bits of information that are floating around in the ether. And if it's like, Oh, that's your data that are like, well, I need to go like capture it. And it's like trying to catch mosquitoes in a fishing net. And they don't, they don't have a proper conceptual conceptualization of what data is. So the key word here being viewed, So data is nothing more than a representation of an occurrence and personal data is a representation representation of an occurrence that happened to you or something that you did. If you can view it sort of physically, like as a stack of things, a stack of occurrences, then you can better conceptualize the act of owning it because what we do right now, we we already behave as if it's a physically tangible asset, but we haven't made the step of bridging that into visualizing exactly what we're doing right so say you're using your grocery like i go to kroger the supermarket and i scan my card what i'm actually doing right there is i'm bartering i'm trading my data based on my actions and my occurrences what did i buy when at what store for what price i'm trading that in exchange for a discount or a better customer experience So we're already operating as if we view it as a physically tangible asset. We just haven't made that leap to be able to verbalize it and view it like I just said. And once we get to that point 
and we realize we're already doing it, then like, oh, I can trade it. I can buy it. I can sell it. I can license it. I can destroy it. I can do all of these things that I can do with other physically tangible assets. And now I can actually conceptualize that in my head. So that's the barrier of entry. Once we get there, I think we're moving in a great direction. So, yeah. Thank you. And my loyalty card, my Vic card at Harris Teeter here in Durham, I get an ad every week, an email ad that says, you know, this is three for five and this is two for one and this is half off. And it's what I bought in the past two weeks. And I wondered about that. And of course, it's my shopping because when I hand the, the checker, woman or man or whoever they are, the card, they scan my number on the back. It goes into the system and it logs everything she, she brings up for me. And they know which tomatoes I bought and what kind of ice ice cream I like, and whether I bought that healthy pizza or the other one, they know you're absolutely right. It didn't seem like that big a deal at the time, but you know what? It is. I'm giving away data. Thank you, Shane. I'll be much more careful when I shop now. Maybe I'll go to another store. I won't have a loyalty card. Bing Shu, I'm looking at your prediction number one. You say having the right data will be better than having more data. What's your reference point? Are we talking about businesses, companies, people? Bing Shu, go ahead. Uh, I think just data in general, uh, the reason I wrote that is specifically from my experience working at Stastack, uh, we deal major, uh, predominantly with baseball data. You live in Durham, uh, so at Duke, Duke is big baseball school. So each baseball player is already having a lot, a ton of data being collected on them during practice, during games, off, uh, off practice, they have uh, uh, psychology sessions, counseling sessions, yoga sessions all of the data is being collected and they're everywhere, but what's actually valuable. Like for example, and we'll, we'll, for example, like at a, at a Duke baseball game, they use this device called TrackMan for each pitch. There are 86 data points collected on the ball itself. Right. And then a normal game end up with between 300 and 500 pitches for, for a pitcher. And that, times 86 that's just on the ball itself and there's other data collected with you know the the outfielders and even the pitcher itself himself uh is is he well hydrated uh is he well rested duke baseball does track your sleep schedule it's required for for baseball players but all this data what's important to coaches especially a lot of players playing at a high level institution like duke they want to get drafted Mm-hmm. They, they, most of the time, they have no idea of what the agents, the scouts are looking for. And their coaches don't know either. That's why there's so many scouting events, showcase events. It's just so they can spend the time and showcase to these agents. And they still don't know. There's no direct communication and connection between what the agents are looking for and what the players are trying to represent. And then eventually all of this data become just end up becoming noise. And they, they might think they did a really good job at this game when this specific scout was there for this specific organization, but they might be looking for somebody else, even though regardless of this, how great this person is at this game, that's not what they're looking for. So there's no transparency and a match there. Doesn't mean data wasn't good. Doesn't mean data wasn't collected enough. It just means the data, the right data wasn't there or even Going back to what Mike was saying, people were, were uh, misinformed. Like there are data being collected, but what kind of data? What, 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 where, where are the, the data being going to? Where where data being used? And then going back to what Tim was saying, like a thousand people liking a restaurant or disliking a restaurant doesn't mean you like it. Mm-hmm. And wait, I, 
the internet provides us with so much data, but what's the data that feels personalized to me and feels right to each individual? And if you if you can extract and find the right data, it might it might not seem as uh, valuable to tons of data, but for a personalized experience, you might end up saving time because you have the right data at the right time. You don't have to go out of your way to spend hours searching for the right vacation package or what you're looking for in a specific town. And you still get the best experience and time out of out of what what you what you put in because you got the right data. Thank you. Very interesting. Very astute comments. And I will tell you, Bing Shu, that what I do when I buy something, I'm looking at something on, let's say, on Amazon, and I'm not familiar with the product, and I think I want it. A frother, a little whisker, whisk, or yoga pants, or whatever it is. The first place I go is to the negative reviews. I look at the ones and the twos. What did they say? How many people said it? Did it sound like they were cray-cray? Or did they have a real objection? And I missed something on this fabulous European-made whisk that comes also with a little whisk, but it's a frother for, it, it can be, get this, you put a little bit of heavy cream in a little bit of a silver jar or some kind of a container, in seven seconds, it will give it to a, get it to a full whipped cream status. I mean, seven to 10 seconds, you've got <laughs> the best whipped cream, put a vanilla in it, put sugar, I didn't say that, whatever. And but the, what they didn't tell you in the review is that once you want to switch to the little egg whisk, which is another device that attaches to it, you put it in, you will never get it out again. There's a glitch in the mechanism where the, the, the attachment goes up and it never comes out. I broke a knife. I broke a tweezer. I almost broke a finger trying to pull this thing out. So I ordered another one. It was reduced from $18 to $10 on Amazon. So I ordered a second one. So I won with the whisk permanently and one with the frother permanently, which was my solution. But if I had read the negative comments, I would have seen that the inability to remove the attachment was a known problem that several people had commented on. I didn't get the right data. So before I changed it to the whisking shoe, if I'd have read that, I would never have changed it. I've got plenty of whisks for whipping up eggs. I didn't need to break the device. So anyway, your point. Tim, go ahead. Yeah, recency of those reviews is also important, like the recency yes. of the day. So yes. we're, we're all manually doing these things to create better data because there's so much of it lying around now. We have to manually have these little things that we all personally do to to surface what's really relevant and the good data for us. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Let's see if we can squeeze in two really fast predictions. We've got about four and a half minutes left. Uh, Mike, I'm looking at your prediction number four. You say data will become an essential utility like electricity. Hmm. 90 seconds. Mike, what does this mean, please? Yeah, I mean, we literally all live our lives based on electricity. This entire conversation we're having here only exists because of electricity and the second part of my prediction is we will consume data just like we consume electricity which is not through its raw form but in abstracted products and services right like we use a computer that has a battery in it that's powered by electricity we have lights that are connected through ac to a generator right like we have all these systems and services and we're going to see the same thing with data because the world ultimately depends and needs data. And there isn't a future in which we just shut it all off. And so what we're going to see is ways to surface the right data, ways to surface, actually use data to personalize experiences like Tim mentioned, like Bing Shu mentioned. We're going to see all these 
derivative products and services created so people can consume it in ways they understand to Shane's point, right? Because it, while it feels like bits and bytes floating in the ether, when you interact with it, you're interacting with data like it's an actual product. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. And Tim, while you're saying, mm-hmm, I'm going to go to you, I think I can sneak in two more predictions here. Tim, number three, the loyalty rewards programs are dead. And you want to talk about NFTs, 90 seconds, Tim. And yeah, and I Gail think is- that, no, this, this sort of brings a lot of these, these points together, right? Good quality data, for like things you said, and making a physical kind of concept of your data, almost like your personal card. Um, that you should be able to join to a a loyalty reward program for a brand and say, this is your reward program. You're not going to be able to change the terms on on it later on when a pandemic screws your your ability to to deliver. And by the way, here's my personal profile and data, and you can use it, what I've given you, to to execute on that loyalty program. There's there's something where we're going to be able to maximize our personal data, first-party data that we give to a brand who's agreed on how they will deliver to that. That's, I think, the, the, the future of a loyalty reward program. And NFTs give us a mechanism to, to do that. They're, they're, they're confined, they're constrained, there's contracts in, involved. Um, and I think that, that's, that that'll build trust between my personal data and what your brand says you're going to be able to do for me. Thank you very much. And we have time for one more, Shane. I put yours into the chat for you. This is interesting. You say in the next 10 years, each person will have a digital ID on a blockchain. Can you unpack that in 90 seconds, Shane? The challenge is yours. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't know if I can unpack it totally in 90 seconds, but I will say I think moving on to the blockchain is inevitable. We're going to move there one way or another. I don't think we have a choice. The question is, do we have the ownership or does someone else have the ownership, right? So there's so many different things that happen in terms of, you know, identity fraud and who's who and making sure that, you know, you can actually um, prove that you are yourself and that you've done these things or like you had this degree or you went to school, you like you went to Harvard, you would need to prove it. That could be minted on your own personal blockchain. But if you don't own that blockchain, then who's stopping Facebook from being like, oh no, you like feet, like we documented it here. Like this is irrefutable. You know what I mean? Like you need to have the ownership or someone else will take it from you and we're going there inevitably, I think. Thank you very much, very well done. Somebody told me they were impressed because one of my panelists was a Mensa member a couple of days ago and I said, I'm a Mensa member. I just went once, everybody had white shirts with pocket protectors and were carrying lunch boxes that their moms had packed for them. And I went there to meet boys. This was a long time. So I never went back, but I said, am I? and they said, you're still a lifetime Mensa member, but who cares? Anyway, I wanna thank so much the four of you. Please stick around for just a minute after we're off the air. I wanna chat with you. I have an offer to make for the four of you. I think you know where I'm going with this. Thank you to Stephen Cariolis for arranging for everybody to be on the show today. Mike, out. I appreciate you, Shane Faria. I appreciate you, Tim Dresdell. Appreciate you, Bing Show. Bing Show ran. I appreciate you, Gabe, my engineer. I appreciate you. Now, gentlemen, I want you to raise your finger and start wagging it like this because I have a quick little exercise we're going to do. Come on, Tim, Bing Show, that's it. So if somebody says to you, and I'm going to say on the count of three, you're going to say no, no, no. If somebody says to you, the future is already here, you're going to say one, two, three. No, 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 no. no. That was yesterday's future. Today's future hasn't happened yet. And we're all going to do our best, right, Bing Shu, to make it a better one. Everybody wave goodbye to LinkedIn, wave goodbye to Facebook, virtually wave goodbye to Voice America. Thank you for joining us for Technology Revolution, the future of now. 
Mark your calendar to join host Bonnie D. Graham every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel to hear how technology is impacting your future now. Oh,